Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 26th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I guess I explained the other day that I was kind of taking it easy these last two weeks of the year. I'm not really taking it easy. I'm taking the opportunity to get an awful lot of um, tech work done at my website that I just can't get anybody to do for me. i got to do it myself. What well, We've updated all of our radio streams to newer software. Um, our readers and listeners really won't notice that, except that you'll notice that we created some code to feed the currently playing programs into the internet radio page at Christagenia, which explains all of our um, radio streams and also the players themselves, at least for the players. We had two test streams that we were using different software on. We've now dedicated those to the Minecraft project, and we're going to play programs that we did over the years for that project in, in a stream, in two streams actually, on that website. They will only be available from the front page of Christiania or from the MindConf project itself, and there won't be any live programming on those streams, at least not in the foreseeable future. I can only um, broadcast to so many streams at once, and mirroring them really isn't worth the effort. Next week, or technically on January 4th, Christagenia.org turns seven years old. It was founded the first week of January 2009. We pray that this is only our beginning, and praise Yahweh for what we have been able to do thus far. Tonight we are going to present the short essay, Nine Covenants with Adam Mann, by Clifton Emma Heiser. We remember that this was one of Clifton's first essays. It, it was um, perhaps nearly two years, if, if my memory serves me right, that Clifton was writing his monthly teaching letters that he decided to write the supplementary brochures explaining diverse topics in a slightly different format that could be used as handouts and things. And um, this was one of the first half dozen or so of his essays in that format, which he had distributed to his prison ministry and also to his mailing list ministry, people that weren't in prison as brochures. This was probably written back in 2001 or 2002. I remember proofreading this essay forum way back then, and it contains some concepts which in the narrower historical focus of the history of the children of Israel and the New Covenant are often forgotten among identity Christians today. 
or poorly understood, especially among newer identity Christians. We will present Clifton's paper and hopefully edify it to some degree by addressing some of the questions it may raise and adding some of our own comments. Recorded in Scripture are nine major covenants. There are a few little promises that God made to individuals, which Clifton doesn't include here. But there are nine major covenants between Yahweh and Adam man. They are, as Clifton identifies them, the Edenic covenant, Genesis chapter 1. The Edenic covenant, which builds on that in Genesis chapter 2. The Noahic, or Noahide perhaps, covenant. The Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the Solomonic Covenant, and finally, the New Covenant. This does not include the covenant made separately with Sarah as one example of those small covenants that Clifton didn't include here. With these various covenants, there are several elements all of these covenants are made exclusively and only with the descendants of Adam. Contrary to modern tradition, Adam was the father of the white race only. And of course, that can be established historically when we examine the actual ancient identities of the races of Genesis 10. The Edenic Covenant, Genesis 1 verses 28 through 29. And Clifton doesn't like to use the term God. I often do because I want to be able to communicate with more mainstream people. Clifton's audience is strictly, for the most part, a Christian identity audience. And he uses the term Elohim, and he does that to make certain points. He stresses the fact that Elohim is used even though the word is a plural form. Grammatically, it's a plural form. The word is used in the singular sense when it's used of Yahweh, our God, all throughout the scripture. A lot of people take that word Elohim in Genesis chapter 1 and take advantage of the fact that the plural form was used of a singular entity in order to peddle some tale that other gods made man besides Yahweh. And that's contrary to all scripture. All later scripture explicitly states, even though the, the word, the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, does not appear in Genesis chapter 1. All subsequent scripture tells us that Yahweh, the tetragrammaton God, created the heavens and the earth in six days. Now, we don't take those days literally, but we know that there is only one God who created us, meaning us, meaning the Adamic race. So Clifton stresses the fact that Elohim is singular. I will not be repeating that every time it appears in his paper tonight. 
And Elohim blessed them, and Elohim said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, the fact that the Hebrew people, Moses specifically, the writers of early scripture, used Elohim to refer to the singular God, even though the word Elohim is a plural form of the Hebrew word El, is called the plural of majesty and was an ancient literary device whereby the writer was magnifying the singular entity that he was referring to by referring to it as a plural. And the fact that that is true is supported by ancient inscriptions with the Canaanites and others of the surrounding nations had used the same grammatical practice to refer to their own singular gods. So it was a grammatical construct that was popular at the time of Abraham and Moses. And this is even mentioned in the notes. I don't have it in the top of my head. But it's even mentioned in the notes in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, edited by James Pritchard and published by Harvard University Press. That's one source. There are other sources, academic sources, where the plural of majesty is both identified and explained. Clifton says about this Edenic covenant that we see in Genesis chapter 1, the Edenic covenant made with Adam, being created in Yahweh's own image, responsible to multiply, populate, and subdue the earth. Adam was, therefore, given the office of priest kingship and became Yahweh's vice regent, being accountable to him in all his realm. Adam not only became king, but also high priest, making him Yahweh's representative on earth to rule over all things therein. Thus, he found himself in charge of the whole visible creation before him to contemplate and to make himself comfortable therewith. He was different from all men that had been used before inasmuch as he was both flesh and spirit. The new element in the creation of Adam was being in the image and after the likeness of Yahweh himself. In this context, it showed the ability to have communion with Yahweh. and later made the incarnation of the word possible. In being fruitful, Adam became responsible for bringing forth a race 
after his own likeness. Contrary to today's pseudoscience, considering all the varieties found among men, they are not all of the same family or species. We equate the concept of the image of Adam to the eternal spirit of Yahweh, instilled into the Adamic man, as we read in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. So the image of man is more than just the mere physical form. That may be the likeness, but the image is something greater. From this covenant, this Edenic covenant, many Christians derive a doctrine which may be called dominion theology. This sort of theology embraces the idea that the Adamic race should bring God's law to the other races, rule over them, and use it to civilize them. They base their idea on this verse, along with a couple of other verses found later in Scripture, which are taken out of their context and applied in a universal manner. And we will discuss that momentarily. What I didn't plan on speaking about, and I will hear, I had discussed it with Clifton earlier when I informed him I was going to present this tape tonight, is Clifton's assertion that Yahweh had given to Adam, the first man, even though he was to multiply, had given to Adam the priest kingship and became Yahweh's vice regent. That's the Melchizedek priesthood. That's what Clifton's referring to. And the proof of that is in the scripture. But the first reference for it is in a very obfuscated verse found in 2 Peter. I'm sorry, perhaps in 1 Peter. I forget already. Where Peter calls Noah the eighth preacher of righteousness. And if you look at BibleHub.com at that verse, you will see that practically every single translation, in fact, every single translation, destroys the translation of that verse. If we look at the King James Version, and, and I'm going to find it here momentarily. If I could type, I would be a lot faster. It's in 2 Peter 2.5, where Peter writes, and he spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth. And then in the King James Version, we see person in italics, a preacher of righteousness. And that word A is the indefinite article. And there are no indefinite articles in Greek. Sometimes they have to be added in to make a passage make sense in English. But that's not the case here. Because where it says eighth, many of the modern translations try to say saved Noah and seven others, or saved Noah and 
who was the ace person. And, and that's simply a poor translation because the, there are cardinal numbers. Eight is the cardinal number, and there are ordinal numbers. And eighth is the ordinal number. And ordinal numbers are used as adjectives to modify a noun. First man, second man, first base, second base, first home, second home, first and second modify the nouns base or man or home, depending upon the context. Here we have eighth, and it modifies the noun preacher. And there is no person in the Greek. As you can notice, the King James has it in italics. How is Noah? This is what the King James translators and all other translators ever since then, they see that eight, they automatically assume it refers to the eight people on the ark. They make Noah the eighth person. If I built the ark, I'd be the first person on it, not the eighth. That may not be very chivalrous. How do they know Noah was the eighth person on the ark? Where does it say that? Noah's the eighth preacher of righteousness. That's what Peter was saying. The preacher of righteousness is a reference to the ancient Melchizedek priesthood, which we only see once much later in history in the Old Testament. Noah's the eighth because if we count the generations of Adam and the oldest male patriarch from Adam through Noah, Adam, Seth, on Enos, on down the line, we get ten. Noah's the tenth in the oldest line of Adamic males. But two men did not live to be the oldest living Adamic male. Enoch. Enoch may have lived long enough, but he wasn't here on earth. He was taken by Yahweh before his father died. Lamech was outlived. Noah's father was Lamech. Was outlived by his father, Methuselah. So, of the Of the ten Adamic males from Adam to Noah, there were eight who were the oldest living Adamic patriarch. That is the priesthood to which Clifton refers. From this covenant, oh, I'm sorry. From this covenant, many Christians derived this dominion theology, and that was the ideal theology for British Israel because it had justified the British Empire, where Britain conquered a quarter of the world and civilized a quarter of the world's beasts to conform to British government. I'm not going to say that they really 
um, did them any good, but they made them by force conform to British government and British standards and speak the English language and all sorts of things like that. And British Israel loved this Dominion theology idea because it made them comfortable in their empire until World War II came along and they lost the empire. They lost the empire and British Israel became a laughingstock because it's built on very shoddy theology. It's only full of half-truths. The primary example of other scriptures that they point to is where it says in a law that the stranger that is within thy gates must keep the Sabbath. And that appears three or four times in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. However, the truth of that matter is this, that Yahweh commanded the Israelites to force the strangers amongst them to keep the Sabbaths, not for the benefit of the strangers, but so that the strangers would not be able to lead the Israelites who were commanded to keep the Sabbaths astray. If you have a town with a hundred Israelites who are commanded to keep the Sabbath on the seventh day, and you let Harvey Weinstein and his brother into your town to set up a movie theater, on that day and to play porno movies. Well, 99 of those Israelites might be in the porno theater rather than keeping the Sabbath. So if we have to have Harvey and his brother amongst us, they're going to obey the Sabbath because we were too weak to kill the bastards. Okay, that's my example. If Dominion theology were true, we would not see this statement of David in the 147th Psalm. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. Dominion theology says, take the law and go teach it to all the beasts. David says, he has not dealt so with any nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. If dominion theology were true, the entire Bible would be consistent with it, and its proponents would not have to search for obscure scriptures to twist in order to support it. Yahweh told the children of Israel to make no covenants with the strangers, and that he was their God exclusively. When we get to the covenant which Yahweh had made with Noah, we will more precisely see the form of dominion which Adamic man was granted over the beasts of the earth. Clifton continues to elaborate upon the creation of the Adamic man from Genesis chapter 2. He's not up to the Adamic covenant yet. He's still talking about the covenant in Eden. And Yahweh Elohim formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul or spirit. 
This is the account, Clifton says, of the creation of Adam while forming his body from the dust. Only the impartation of Yahweh's breath made him a living spirit man. The term ruddy is used for Adam as his descendants are the only men and women who can show blood in the face. The word yasar portrays the figure of a potter at work, molding with his hands the plastic material he holds. Being fashioned from the dust of the ground, the spirit came from the breath of Yahweh. He is literally a creature of two worlds. Both earth and heaven claim him, the two natures of the Adamic man. Yahweh is not only the former but the father of spirits. And by former here, Clifton means one who forms. We do not have time to elaborate here, so we will be brief. Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3 were a single scroll describing the creation of Yahweh with the Adamic man as the pinnacle of that creation. Genesis 2-4 through the end of Genesis chapter 4 are a second scroll and a separate account picking up the creation of the Adamic man, as told in Genesis 1-27 through 29, and continuing the story through his fall and the resulting punishment through which the history of our race has unfolded to the present day. Genesis chapter 5 then begins a more detailed account of some of the history of the race and how the scope of Yahweh's plan for the Adamic man was narrowed down to the seed of Abraham. The specific language of Genesis 2-4 and Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 proves our assertion in this regard beyond all doubt. As we have shown in detail, in the opening segments of our relatively recent, I think it was 2013, actually, it's already old, our relatively recent pragmatic Genesis series, it is indisputable that Genesis chapter 2 is a recapitulation of the events described in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 29. Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4, anyway depicting the same element of creation in a greater detail and from a more specific perspective. They were not two creations of the same Adamic man. All subsequent scripture, along with the contents of Genesis itself, proves such claims, like the sixth and eighth day creation, to be absolute folly. Clifton continues from later in, Genesis chapter 2. And Yahweh Elohim said, It is not good that Adam should be alone. I will make a, a, a help meet for him. And Clifton comments, Time brought the need for a helper who would be compatible to himself. His bride was formed from one of his ribs, taken from his side as he slept. Upon receiving her, Adam was given headship over her. Adam, by being in charge, found himself responsible for any and all of Eve's actions. Therefore, when Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, it was the same as if 
Adam had eaten of it himself. And, and Clifton says that there are other ramifications to this story, which he didn't have enough room to present here. And it's certainly true. We're talking about the covenants and not the nature of the sin or what it really meant to eat of that fruit. Because Adam was the son of Yahweh, each sin through Adam was placed upon Yahweh's head. Because Yahweh was married to Israel, when we, as Israel sinned, it was laid to Yahweh's charge. That is why he had to suffer death in our place. Thus, Adam became responsible for his own household throughout the ages, as Clifton cites 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. Shame wrought from either party reflects on the other, but in the end, it is charged to the Almighty. For he is their maker. In creating Eve, her flesh was of Adam's flesh. The only way a couple can be of one flesh is to marry one of their own race. And Clifton cited the passage from 1 Corinthians where Paul wrote, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. In reference to the relationship between Adam and Eve, Clifton cites Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, where Paul had written, For we are members of his body, referring to Christ, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh, and that shall also be the second coming of the Christ. And Clifton's illustration here is excellent. As all of the beasts were disqualified, the wife of Adam had to be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And that is therefore the law of God for a legitimate marriage. Christ could not be taught anyone who would be forcing a violation of that law. Christ is not going to be taught people all the red, yellow, black, and brown people because they're of different flesh and different bone. In the ancient Near East, there are historical accounts describing what the Persians had done when a man committed a crime against the nation that disgraced the people. The Persians would not only execute the culprit, they would go to that man's village or his neighborhood if he lived in a city and they would execute all of his family and all of his kin as well. If you disgraced your nation, say you were found to be a spy in war or a traitor or committed some other heinous crime against your Persian nation, they went to your village and wiped it out. Your people paid heavily, so you would think twice about doing such a thing if you love your people. We see a similar punishment in Joshua chapter 7, where the patriarch 
was responsible for his whole household. And when the patriarch sinned, his whole household was punished. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zarah and the silver and the garment the Babylonian garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? Yahweh shall trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Not only Achan, but his entire family, all of his animals, and even his material possessions were destroyed because of the crime which he had committed. The punishment is referred to later in Joshua chapter 22, where we see that the interpretation is true, and it says, Did not Achan, the son of Zarah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel, and that man perished not alone in his iniquity. His whole family was put to death with him. So we see with Adam's sin, his whole family suffers likewise. As Clifton said, there are many other implications In Genesis chapters 2 and 3, so many that a book is needed to discuss them, and we would still miss something. Adam was responsible for Eve, yet the serpent apparently found Eve off alone. Paul later tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that because of fornication, each man, must have his own wife. And each woman must have her own husband. The wife must, must render the obligation, I'm sorry, the husband must render the obligation due to the wife. That's also in law. I didn't dig it out for tonight's program, but it is in the Pentateuch, and that's referring to the sexual obligation. And in like manner, the wife also to the husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband. And in like manner also, the husband does not have his authority over his own body, but the wife. Do not withdraw from one another unless in agreement for a time in order that you devote time to prayer and come together into one place again that the adversary, that Satan, would not tempt you due to your incontinence. Paul's making a direct allusion to Genesis chapter 3. With this, it becomes evident that Eve should not have been alone. In the ancient world, in the medieval Christian world, and even until recent times, women, and especially young maidens, were not accustomed to travel freely 
unescorted through most of through much of our history women didn't leave the house alone so adam certainly was just as responsible as eve for their sin and became more responsible when he joined her in it however when adam was called into account he said to yahweh but that woman you gave me he was passing the buck immediately. Here Clifton moves on to what he calls the Adamic Covenant. Hardly had Eve been given to Adam as a mate of his own flesh and bone, and Satan entered the scene representing the family tree that they were warned not to eat or touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, now, some people have accused me and Clifton of saying that people are trees. We've never said that. Except perhaps in reference to one passage in the gospel where a man healed of blindness said, I see men as trees walking. But we've never said that men are trees. That's ridiculous. But a person can represent a tree. Don't you get it? <laughs> if, if Ireland is a racial tree, the Irish people, and you're an Irish person, you represent that Irish tree of your race, being only perhaps one acorn on the tree or one olive, depending on the analogy you prefer. People represent trees like people represent their race. That's all we mean by that. The serpent was a representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sure as hell, was not a wooden tree. It's an analogy for a race. The race of the fallen angels. As the Revelation in chapter 12 tells us, that the fallen angels are that old serpent and Satan. Satan entered the scene, representing the family tree they were warned not to eat or touch. Thus, Yahweh placed a curse on the product of that unholy union, initiating a continual life and death struggle between the offspring of the serpent and her offspring. The woman's seed, therefore, is not that of the serpent, but of Adam. And, of course, that is true. The Adamic covenant reads as follows. And Yahweh said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly, shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her, meaning Adam's seed. Your sister is your seed. Your wife, once you become one flesh, her seed is your seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Since Eve's seed is the same as Adam's, 
the war of Genesis 3.15 is between Adam's descendants and Cain's. Nowhere in the Bible is Cain included in the genealogy of Adam. And the descendants of Cain, to this day, trace their lineage through their mother. Genesis 3.15 is called the Protovangelion, which means first gospel. Therefore, no gospel message is complete without it. It predicts a perpetual ongoing hostility between the descendants of Satan and the woman, she representing white mankind. The power of Satan was ultimately to be destroyed by the very offspring of Adam and Eve, whom he had deceived. Through the seed of the woman are many. I'm sorry, though the seed of the woman are many, one would come to destroy the descendants of the serpent and their works. Adam is not mentioned in the Protovangelion. Therefore, the address is not to Adam and Eve, but to Eve and the serpent alone. Some suppose this passage to apply to a certain enmity between men and snakes. This is fantasy rather than reality. The cursed serpent was to eat dust, and that is why today they live off the refuse of junkyards and landfills. Well, that was true for most of the medieval period, until they got banks. By the way, there is not a single snake species which eats and digests dust as its food. Here, the dust is symbolical of the serpent's sauce rather than his meat. While creeping and groveling upon the earth and taking food, he must necessarily also consume the dust and filth. That is why today's Jews make a lot of money from pornography and everything immoral. Not until the destruction of one or the other will the enmity of the two seeds end. The Protovangelion is therefore the earliest pronouncement of the gospel. The long conflict between the literal children of Yahweh and the literal children of the evil one. Now, Clifton cited, and I don't know how much that paragraph came from it, but Clifton cited the International Bible Commentary by F.F. F. Bruce on page 118 for at least portions of that paragraph. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have some remarks here. Adam, of course, Adam himself being dust, the serpent may be depicted as a parasite. The Jews have been living off us. All of the descendants of the serpent, they're not limited to Jews, have been living off of Adam. So there's a greater analogy there. Clifton's remarks concerning Genesis 4.15 are astute. I'm sorry, 3.15 are astute. However, there is more which must be said here. Well, Genesis 3.15 is a punishment which also includes a definite promise to the Adamic man. We do not entirely agree that it describes only one single individual that will destroy all of the serpent's seed, even if that is the ultimate purpose of Christ. The seed on both sides of Genesis of the Genesis 3.15 equation is a collective seed. The manner in which the seed, the word seed, should be properly understood. Rather, God operates through his people, and that is the way in which Paul of Tarsus understood this very verse when he had told the Romans that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet, under your Adamic feet shortly, and that was one manifestation of the struggle of Genesis 3.15, one major one. The first gospel, 
or protoevangelion, as it is called, is not Genesis 3.15 alone. It is not completely expressed until we get to Genesis 3.22. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. It is the serpent, the sin caused by the serpent's deception, and the struggle of Genesis 3.15, which the man must be saved from. And therefore, Genesis 3.22 depicts the tree of life, which is Yahshua Christ, as the way of salvation. While Genesis 3.15 expresses the need, Genesis 3.22 completes the Adamic covenant, in my humble opinion. Now Clifton moves on to Genesis chapters 6 and 9, and the account of Yahweh's covenant with Noah. And he cites Genesis 6.18, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come, into the ark, thou, and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. And then from Genesis 9. And Clifton is only going to cite verses 1, 7, 8, 9, and 11, but we are going to build on that a little shortly. And Yahweh blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. And Yahweh spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And Clifton says, We could go into a long dissertation concerning the various details of Noah's flood, but this is limited space. In this limited space, it is paramount to demonstrate the most important facts. And that we have to keep in mind that the entire purpose of Clifton's little essay here is to illustrate that Yahweh made nine covenants, major covenants with the Adamic man. So he can't go off on all these little tangents to finish his purpose in, in perhaps 4,500 or 5,000 words, however many it is. That's his limited space. In this limited space, it is paramount to demonstrate the most important facts. First of all, the purpose of the flood was to destroy from the face of the earth the products of race mixed marriages. The reason Noah and his family were preserved is because they were perfect in their generations. Here, the Hebrew word for generations means race. Wilson's Old Testament Word Studies by William Wilson, page 184. Wilson specifically designates Genesis 6 9. And we would like to clarify that the purpose of the flood, as stated in Genesis 6, was to destroy the Adamic man Yahweh had created, who had accepted and was participating in the race mixing. Many of the Rephaim, 
appear again. The giants created by this race mixing appear in Genesis chapter 15. They were not destroyed. Yahweh made a covenant with Noah that neither shall all flesh, meaning all Adamic flesh, be cut off anymore by the waters of the flood. But it is more serious than it sounds, for it is recorded at a future time under similar circumstances, and for the same reason that the same thing will happen except by fire. And Clifton is quoting from that very same portion that we had cited before in reference to Noah being the eighth preacher of righteousness. Clifton is going to cite from 2 Peter chapter 3 to substantiate his assertion. And Peter says, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are being kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And Clifton cites, it's cross-references to that passage. Obadiah 18, Ezekiel 39, verses 6 and 9, and Matthew 13, 42. And then he says that one can almost visualize it in mind, a holy fire from the Almighty, moving at the speed of light in and out of every home where one of these resides, severing out and destroying those of mixed race, probably similar to two kings, chapters 9 through 14, where fire came down out of heaven and destroyed two squads of 50 men of the king in Elijah's presence. Perhaps that's a typo for 2 Kings 9.14. I'll check it later. If this analogy is true, with all the multiculturalism and miscegenation that is going on in our present day, it would appear the undertakers all over the world are going to be quite busy. It may be that the fire that destroys the bastards are actually the house of Israel and the house of Joseph, which is simply a Hebrew parallelism and, and reduplication to stress the fact that it's the children of Israel that are going to be the flame, as it says in Obadiah. But it is always difficult to perceive ahead of time how a prophecy event might unfold. So we certainly won't criticize Clifton at all for these statements. He very well may be right. We just aren't certain how many undertakers can operate backhoes and bulldozers. When Clifton wrote his essays, they were all designed to fit, as I've already explained, kind of extemporaneously. They were all designed to fit in a brochure format of eight columns on an eight and a half by 14 inch piece of paper. So space was limited and he had to be rather concise. But there is another important aspect of Yahweh's covenant with Noah, which is found in Genesis chapter nine, and which we are because of our earlier, earlier criticism of dominion theology, we are compelled to discuss here. And we'll read the first two verses of Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon 
every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, and upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. This is the true dominion theology, that the fear of the children of Adam through Noah is upon every beast of the earth. This is repeated later to the children of Israel among the consequences of their obedience to Yahweh found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So in Genesis 9, to the children of Noah, it was basically without condition. In Deuteronomy 28, to the children of Israel, there are conditions attached. The condition that they're obedient to God's law. And it says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I commanded thee to stay, that Yahweh thy God, or Elohim, as Clifton likes to say, will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God. And skipping to Deuteronomy 28.7, Yahweh shall cause mine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Yahweh shall establish, in verse 9, a holy Yahweh shall establish thee, a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep all the commandments of Yahweh thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of thee. You don't teach them the law. You follow the law so that they are in fear of you. That is the only true dominion theology. You teach them the law, and they're going to be sleeping with your daughter. Now Clifton proceeds to discuss Yahweh's promises to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. And he cites a slew of passages over 10, 15 chapters in Genesis, Abraham down to Isaac, down to Jacob. So we're just going to read them because they exemplify the Abrahamic covenant. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, starting with Genesis thirteen sixteen. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, Yahweh, said unto him, Abram, take me a high fur of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all of these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds he divided not. Genesis 17. 
As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations I have made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make thee nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and my seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be an Elohim unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Genesis 22. And the angel of Yahweh called unto Abraham out of heaven for the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing, sacrificing Isaac, being willing to offer up his son, and has not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the Israel, nations of the earth, be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Israel, Clifton says, blessed primarily others indirectly, and he cites Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15 next, and we'll read those momentarily. This is the same way in which Paul had interpreted this promise that in his seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul had said that Yahweh, foreseeing the nations which would come from Abraham's loins, and I'm paraphrasing, and Abraham's seed becoming many nations, that is why he said, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Clifton is not, by adding the word Israel into that passage, he is not inventing some new interpretation. He's using the same interpretation that Paul of Tarsus used in relation to that same promise. Genesis 28, I am Yahweh, the mighty one of Abraham, thy father, and the mighty one of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad beyond that land, to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Clifton again says the Israel families and cites Mark chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken of to thee. Genesis 32, and now we're speaking to Jacob, but as we see in the account of Jacob and Esau, Isaac told Jacob that if he marries one of his own people, that he would be the heir to the promises of Abraham. And thou sayest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude 
And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince thou hast power with Yahweh and with men, and hast prevailed. And Genesis 35.11 And Yahweh said unto him, Jacob, I am Yahweh Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Well, not all, Clifton says, well, not all of the above is promised directly to Abraham. These passages are all basically the Abrahamic covenant. And that is true, as we've explained, that Isaac told Jacob that he would inherit the promises to Abraham which Yahweh made to Abraham, that they would fall upon Jacob. These promises constitute the basic message of the entire Bible, and we are, and are speaking of Yahweh's kingdom, because space will not allow. I cannot go into all the details of the Abrahamic covenant in this presentation. I did a paper entitled Born Under Contract, in which I covered most of the particulars of which you may want to obtain a copy. And, of course, that is also found at Clifton and Heiser's website at Christagenia. Perhaps we shall present and discuss Clifton's Born Under Contract one day in the future. Here, he speaks about that paper that he had written in reference to the Abrahamic Covenant, and he says... In that paper, it was explained that if one is born of a certain lineage, he is under the above covenants from his very first breath, which he cannot in any way annul. It was also explained how anyone else wanting to be under the covenants is excluded. And it was also explained that those who were under these binding obligations will be chastised until they finally comply with the terms set forth and how they have no choice in the matter. If you are of an Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, Germanic, Scottish, Irish, Danish, Dutch, French, Northern Italian, white Spanish or related background, you are under these covenants whether you approve of them or not. As Paul also explains, you were bought with the price and you are not your own. In the patriarchal societies of the ancient world, the father had property rights over his wife and his children. Such a concept was still found in ancient Rome at the time of Christ. Such a concept is an integral part of the creation of Yahweh, and it is evident in his word. Therefore, Abraham had the authority to cast Ishmael aside, and Abraham had the authority to place Isaac for sacrifice upon an altar, that's the authority that the patriarchs of the ancient world had. They owned their offspring. They owned their families. As Paul also said elsewhere, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay? Therefore, the created have no right to protest the will of the creator. In the end, every Adamic knee shall bow. Clifton continues, 
The kingdom is spoken of in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, as a city foursquare having twelve gates, and is called the New Jerusalem. It is not an ordinary city like Detroit, Indianapolis, Denver, or someplace like that, which, when we arrive, we see a city limit sign telling us where we are. We are told this city has foundations made of jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, and many other precious stones. These very same stones were in the breastplate of the priests. Therefore, these foundation stones represent the people that make up the twelve tribes of Israel. The city has a great high wall, and on each of its four sides are three gates with the names of the twelve patriarchs. Therefore, the only way to enter that city is by way of the patriarch of one's lineage. The great high wall separates those on the inside from those on the outside. It is, therefore, a wall of racial segregation. Though the enemy today is persistently trying, in all his power, to break down this wall, it has a very firm foundation, and in the end, he will fail. And here Clifton has properly made the realization that the city of God in the Revelation is... Some people think some Disney World city is going to drop out of the sky, right? The city of God in the Revelation is actually an allegory for the people. The city is the people, and the people are the city. They were born from above. That's how they come down out of heaven. As their father Adam was the son of God, so the city descends out of heaven. If one is not, of those 12 tribes, one cannot possibly ever be a part of that city of God. Clifton goes on to describe the next covenant found in Scripture, the Mosaic Covenant. And he says that there is much that could be said concerning the Mosaic Covenant, such as the exclusion of relationships with other foreign sovereign powers. Broadly speaking, the Mosaic Covenant included the Ten Commandments portraying one's duty to the Almighty and his fellow Adamic man. No society can long exist without laws and ordinances, for they will revert to anarchy. Thus was commanded blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience of Yahweh's laws. Adam, Israel, is the only people who have ever been under the law of Yahweh. Not going into all of this in detail, we will dwell mainly on the most important feature of the Mosaic Covenant, the marriage of Yahweh, the marriage of Israel to Yahweh. Deuteronomy chapters, chapter 26, verses 17 and 18 are cited in this regard, and Clifton wrote, Thou hast, or the King James Version wrote, I'm sorry, Thou hast avouched Yahweh, this day to be thy Elohim, and to walk in his ways, and to keep his statutes, and his commandments, and his judgments, and to hearken unto his voice. And Yahweh has avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he has promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments. And Clifton says, these are Israel's wedding vows.
which we see in Exodus chapter 19, 20, 21, 22. And Clifton says later, Israel would break these vows, making it mandatory for Yahweh to divorce her. By law, the two parties could never remarry unless one or the other were to die. By Yahweh coming in Adam's flesh and dying at Calvary, he made it possible for a reuniting of the two parties, which is defined as redemption. And I would say that many people, even identity Christians, think that the failure on the part of Israel to keep the Mosaic covenant somehow affected the covenant which Yahweh had made with Abraham. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Even though the Mosaic Covenant failed because of Israel's disobedience, it was designed to fail. The Abrahamic Covenant still stands. As Paul of Tarsus wrote to the Galatians, even though this verse is always mistranslated, now to Abraham the promises had been spoken, and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, Esau, Keturah, Ishmael, but as of one, and to your offspring, Israel, which are anointed. Now I say this, and here's the pertinent part of our quote here. Now I say this, Galatians 3.17, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, the law which arrived 430 years later, does not invalidate by which the promise is left idle. Yahweh made the promises to Abraham 430 years before the Mosaic covenant began at Mount Sinai. So the Mosaic Covenant, according to Paul of Tarsus, does not invalidate the promises to Abraham, which stand without condition. Abraham was promised that many nations and kings would come from his loins, among other things. But Abraham was not promise, promised a unified kingdom government and peace under a godly government. Abraham was not promised those things. That was the later Mosaic covenant. The promises to Abraham, he was promised kings would come from his loins and his offspring would be many nations. The promises to Abraham are unconditional. The promises under the Mosaic covenant are conditional upon the obedience of Israel to the laws which were made to govern that kingdom when they failed to keep those laws. And Clifton says that you can't have a kingdom without laws. When they failed to keep those laws, they forfeited the protection of God needed to maintain the kingdom. In Christ, the offspring of Abraham anticipate restoration to a godly kingdom and peace once again. Clifton moves on to another covenant related to the Old Testament Israelite kingdom, and that's the Palestinian covenant. And yes, it was another covenant, separate from the one at Sinai. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, 
that I've set before you, life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that thou, both thou and thy seed may live. And Clifton says, while this is not the Palestinian covenant in itself, this is the warning for not obeying the provisions thereof. And he cites Deuteronomy chapter 28. And it shall come to pass, and he's only citing verses 1 and 15 because he had space constraints. If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy Elohim, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I commanded thee this day, that Yahweh thy Elohim will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy Elohim, to observe and to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I commanded thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And Clifton says, without repeating the blessings and the curses, to understand, it would be necessary to read all the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Yahweh had commissioned Israel to kill every member of the race-mixed group of Canaanite nations, man, woman, and child, without mercy. And Clifton cites many passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy up to this point. Not only did they refuse to destroy these peoples, they adopted some of their abominable ways, which brought the cursings upon them. I am going to use only one example of the cursings, Deuteronomy 28, verses 43 and 44. The stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and now shall be the tail. This has been literally fulfilled in the central banks, which are today in all Israel lands. And by Israel, of course, Clifton means white Christian lands. In the United States, we have the Jewish Communist-controlled Federal Reserve System under the fifth plank of the communist Karl Marx's manifesto. This is the same agency which collects the federal communist income tax under the name of the Internal Revenue Service, and Clifton cites the second plank of the Communist Manifesto. As the curse says, we will borrow from the Jew, but he will not borrow from us. Ironically, the Jews are the same people we refuse to destroy when we, meaning white Christians who were descended from the Israelites when we were in Palestine. Of course, Clifton was being concise, but this Palestinian covenant was indeed a covenant over and above the original Levitical covenant, as we may read in Deuteronomy chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant which Yahweh commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, meaning the earlier covenant. Now he moves on to the covenant with David, which is also over and above these other covenants. And he starts with 1 Samuel, chapter 16. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon David from that day forward. And then quoting from Psalm 89, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, and as a faithful witness in heaven. And then from Jeremiah chapter 33, Thus saith Yahweh, If ye can break my covenant of the day, and my covenant of the night, that there should be not day and night in their season, at their proper times, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. David, as a lad, was a shepherd. He spent many days and nights tending his father's sheep. The sheep could never be left alone, for there were a tremendous number of wolves in those days. Because of the gun in our day, the wolf population has been brought under control. David's defense against the wolves was a slingshot. No doubt he practiced by the hour to become proficient with it. So when it became necessary, he could kill a wolf with the first shot. Later, as a young man, he would put his skill to good use by killing a giant. True, David, the warrior, killed many men, a man after Messiah's own heart, foreshadowing his glorious return. Many might say Yahweh has broken his word to David, as the throne of David was non-existent in Palestine for nearly 600 years during the intertestament period. Though Zedekiah was taken captive by Babylon, and all of his sons killed before his eyes, he still had an heir. Because in Israel, there was a provision for daughters to inherit the throne if there were no male descendants. Numbers chapter 27. Therefore, Jeremiah took Zedekiah's two daughters to Spain and Ireland. No sooner had Jeremiah arrived in Ireland with Teotete than he arranged for her marriage to Yoke the Heriman, a prince of the Tuatha de Danans on his mother's side and a direct descendant of Phenesia Farsa, and thus of the line of Zara, twin brother of Pharez, of the royal house of Judah, uniting the royal house of Pharez and the royal house of Zara. Lastly, Joshua, at his first advent, became priest, but he is yet to be crowned king at his second advent. And that's absolutely true. Joshua Christ refused the kingship at his first advent as it tells us explicitly in the Gospel of John. Now, Clifton's using British Israel and, I believe, Charles Totten as a source for this information. It is very plausible that through Zedekiah's daughters, the promise to David was sustained by Yahweh. But Zedekiah was placed on the throne by the Babylonians, who had removed Jeconiah, his brother, and brought him to Babylon as a prisoner. Then, through Jeconiah, the brother of Zedekiah, descended Zerubbabel, who returned to Jerusalem, and from whom 
Joseph, the husband of Mary, had descended. Through Joseph, Christ inherited the lawful right to the throne of David through Jeconiah. Although because Jeconiah was cursed, none of the line of legitimate kings since Jeconiah had actually held that throne. They had the hereditary right to it, but they never exercised rule. Christ can exercise rule ultimately because he inherited the throne. He lived after he was resurrected, so he still holds the title to it, but he's not the physical seat of Jeconiah, so he can sit on it. Clifton continues with the promises to Solomon, the Solomonic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And when thy, meaning David's, days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He, meaning Solomon, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity... I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before me. Thy throne shall be established forever. And Clifton says, what we must understand is our Messiah got his authority from Solomon's throne, but he was not from Solomon's bloodline. Actually, Yahshua was from the bloodline of Mary through Nathan. And this is Clifton's accepted interpretation of the genealogy given by Luke. Solomon's brother. Solomon's line followed on down through Judas kings to Jeconiah. When a curse was placed that none of Jeconiah's seed would ever again sit on the throne. Jeremiah 22.30 At the time of the Incarnation, Mary's husband Joseph was a descendant of the curse of Jeconiah. Because Joshua became the legal son of Joseph, Joseph was able to pass on the throne to the Messiah without the curse falling on him, although Solomon's bloodline didn't follow down to the Messiah. It did bypass Jeconiah's curse through Zedekiah's daughter, Teatethi, going on to Ireland, because Teatethi was the niece of Jeconiah and not literally his descendant. This is a very complex topic. We're not going to comment much on it, but Clifton is certainly right to say that Joshua Christ inherited the throne through Jeconiah. However, Christ not being an actual physical descendant of Jeconiah, he could indeed sit on a throne which he had inherited, where Jeconiah's physical descendants had been barred. And that's the curse of Keniah in Jeremiah. And with this, Clifton proceeds to the final covenant, the new covenant. And he quotes Hebrews chapter 8. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh. And Hebrew, Paul is in turn quoting Jeremiah chapter 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith Yahweh. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them an Elohim, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, or Know the Lord. For ye all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Clifton comments that it's saying here that the teaching of you must know the Lord is going to be discontinued. It's simply amazing that this is exactly what Judeo-churchianity is teaching today. It's incredible because it was never true in the first place. For he does the choosing, not us. Many today call themselves New Testament Christians. The question arises, what is a New Testament Christian anyway? Some seem to be under the impression that the Old Testament dealt with the Jews and the law, that somehow the Almighty had been unsuccessful with the Jews, and when they rejected him, he decided to extend the plan of salvation to the so-called Gentiles. Many flatly state the New Testament church is not connected with the Old Testament law, that the law was abandoned at the cross, and the emphasis is now on grace, suggesting whosoever may come. Since the expression New Testament Christian is used so widely, maybe it would be well if someone would explain what the term testament means. Just what is this New Testament? If one is going to use the term and teach it to others, they surely ought to know what the term means. Both the word covenant and the word testament in the New Testament come from the Greek word 1242. It's diatheke. In the Strong's Concordance, both words simply mean contract. All these nine covenants we have been considering are thus contracts. In a covenant or contract, it is important to have all the parties named, as no contract without naming the parties is worth the paper and ink. So too the contract must specify the performance expected from each of the parties spelled out in legal terms. Contracts are binding on all parties, and each of them can legally force the others to perform exactly as set forth. Well, who are the parties of the New Testament? Does your Bible specify the party of the second part as Gentiles, or whosoever will? The answer is no. This exclusive contract is made with only two entities, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The next question is, if you are not a member of either of these two houses, what right do you have to the New Testament contract? Whatever the legal terms are, it's obvious. You don't have any right whatsoever. Some argue that Gentiles are grafted in and are grafted and are granted a place under the covenant. One should be reminded that only olive branches can be grafted into an olive tree. It should be noted, the olive tree is Israel's symbol, so it is not talking about someone else. Others argue non-Israelite Gentiles became spiritual Israel. No such term exists in all scripture. 
Therefore, the parties named in the New Testament are the same parties of the Old Testament. Yahweh Almighty has not changed his mind and abandoned his people Israel and Judah in favor of all men, or whosoever will, but made his New Testament with the very same people as before. What legal right would the Almighty have for changing the parties mentioned in the contract in the middle of the stream? We may break the terms for our obligations, but Yahweh would never think of such a thing, and it is blasphemous for anyone to even suggest such a thing, for it accuses him of fraud by forgery. Now, we have often seen in the epistles of the apostles that even long after the resurrection, the children of Israel are reckoned by tribes and accounted according to the flesh. There is no so-called spiritual Israel. And Clifton concludes, the plain truth is the New Testament was never made for a so-called church, Gentiles, or whosoever, and the Bible never suggests otherwise. Rather, it specifies a very distinct racial and national entity with implications based on Yahweh's law. The New Testament went into effect the very instant Yahshua died and gave up the ghost. Contrary to some, Yahweh does not promote universalism. What is universalism but Catholicism? What is Catholicism but pluralism? What is pluralism but multiculturalism? What is multiculturalism but international Jewish communism? What is international Jewish communism but covenant defrauding modern-day Judeo-churchianity? So Clifton tries to create a circle, and it works. What can we now add to that? The point of Clifton's paper is to show that Yahweh's promises have multiple layers of abstraction, but at all levels they were made exclusively with a single race of people. Then, as we progress through the scripture, we see more and better promises, but the scope of those better promises is narrowed down to a single family. The scope is never widened, and the unconditional promises to that single family have never been changed. However, all of the promises of God in the unconditional covenant still stand. They are supplemented by these later covenants, but they are never dissolved. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.